Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Tom Kemp, a Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur, angel investor, policy advisor and author. His book on containing big tech is set to be released on August 22nd, so we decided to reach out to Tom and discuss his main thesis on how we can protect our civil rights, economy and democracy in the age of big tech. Tom, welcome to The Other Web. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. So you wrote a book recently in which, at least in part, you're talking about big tech and the dangers it poses to society. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Um, I wanted a book that was simple, and but also a comprehensive look at the issues that big tech is bringing to our society, to our democracy, that you could literally just hand to your Uncle Larry or your average politician and say, you know, here it is, and they can say, aha, I get it, uh, without having to hand them, you know, 500 articles and have them try to figure it out. Because I think one of the problems that actually works to big tech's advantage is that there's a lot of confusion about what the issues are, uh, et cetera. The second thing is, based on my background, doing both policy and being a tech entrepreneur, there's actually some simple solutions to some of these problems, uh, which I provide in the book as well. Um, and then lastly, um, I, I, as looking at the literature that's out there, there's just been so many new things that have been happening in the world of tech that really haven't been covered. For example, the Dobbs decision that means that we're really in a post-abortion rights America, and what is the impact of that vis-a-vis -vis digital surveillance, clearly the rise of AI, and how is big tech using it, what are some of the risks, uh, new entrants such as TikTok and the increasingly addictive uh, nature of their, their product, new laws, et cetera. So I also wanted to give a, a fresh and up-to-date look at big tech and basically try to connect the dots and, and be able to explain to people what are the issues, but also what are the solutions. All right. So for listeners who haven't read your book yet, maybe we can try to define some of those terms and at least give them, let's say, let's say a taste of the topics that you cover. So let's start from the last one you mentioned, the fact that certain services like TikTok are extremely addictive. How do you see this trend developing? How did we get where we are? Where is it about to go? Yeah, so historically, um, you know, we made a trade-off to join uh, big tech's walled gardens um, and were given free services. Um, and the trade-off was that we gave up our personal data and the business models for at least Google and Meta are primarily selling us ads. And in the past, it was about like if I was shopping on one site and I was looking at red shoes, then for the next two weeks, I would see red shoes everywhere, right? They were retargeting me uh, based on something that behaviorally that I did in the past. Um, but what's increasingly been happening, especially over the last few years, is a lot of that data has been weaponized. Um, and uh, and now that data could actually be used against people. Uh, you know, if you're seeking reproductive care, there's concerns about uh, individuals that are trans or LGBTQ. Could that be used to discriminate against them? Could the data be used for identity theft? Now, once you layer on artificial intelligence that consumes data uh, that's collected to us, 
some of the concerns are, given the nature of their business models, that will they use AI to try to pummel us with more ads? Will they try to use AI to better compete for our attention um, and our eyeballs and try to make their products more addictive? Will they use, and part of that addictiveness could potentially be rile us up uh, and kind of lead us into rabbit holes, uh, et cetera. So AI, to be clear, has so many good uses in medical, self-driving cars, et cetera. So I'm, I'm definitely not anti-AI, but given the business models of advertising that they, a lot of the big tech companies will utilize AI to facilitate their core business model um, and kind of take the data collection, you know, and put it on steroids with AI. And that, that's a fundamental concern. And I, I spent a lot of time in the book uh, talking about that. And I'll end on one thing is, is that maybe you and I can potentially navigate around, you know, rabbit holes or not fall in, although a lot of people do fall in, that it's it's super concerning about children who don't have the intellectual capability and wherewithal to avoid kind of the, the, the dark patterns, the traps, the never-ending videos, et cetera. And I think if you look at the usage of TikTok, I think that's a great example by children. That's a great example of what I'm talking about. Right. So I'm curious about the AI part of this equation. And I guess the main question that I have while listening to the way that you just presented it is, is there really a change happening or were these algorithms using AI for the past 10 years already? Right. They have been self-reinforcing. The only thing that we see right now with AI is the development of large language models, which may or may not be useful. But those algorithms have been self-learning and kind of learning our patterns and how to hack our brains for a very long time. Right. I agree with what you say. So historically, the algorithms and the, the artificial, I mean, AI has been around for a long time. Obviously, you now have more computing horsepower that you didn't have in the past, and you have more data, which you haven't had in the past. But the AI historically has been focused on automated decision-making to figure out, at least in the case of the big tech, trying to figure out, hey, what ads can you serve, um, et cetera. But now we've actually reached the point of generative AI where the advertising, they could actually generate the ads, be it images or text on the fly, um, that adds even additional power or they can generate unique and distinct dark patterns that only you and I could see that a researcher or a regulator would not be able to see as well. So it's the fact that we now have entered into the generative AI revolution that's occurring uh, as a kind of the next wave after the historic automated decision-making raises additional concerns because there may be situations and scenarios where we only, you or I, based on our personal data, will only experience something and can't be reproduced and, and, and replicated. And so it makes it even more powerful. So yes, we've had it in the past, uh, but the ability to exploit this um, you know, is gone up a level 
uh, especially with the generative uh, capabilities to, to do that on the fly, which they didn't have in the past. I see. So to use an analogy, until today, TikTok could only choose the hardest drug that it possibly can get me hooked on. And from today, they'll be able to create a designer drug just for me. Yeah, I think that uh, that the the ability to generate things based on your personal data that they know. I mean, if, if you talk to teenagers, they actually say that TikTok knows them better than they know themselves, right? Like, you know, it's it's amazing that like they constantly say, you know, wow, the next video was just spot on. Uh, in terms of what I want, so that I think TikTok, you know, represents kind of the apex predator in the attention economy. Just uh, quoting Professor Scott Galloway with that expression, I want to give him full credit for that. And I think they they represent the best example of how AI uh, has evolved over the last few years. And we certainly didn't have anything comparable to that a few years ago. I think the irony of that is when you show people the next video, they say, wow, this is exactly what I needed to see. If you ask them at the end of an hour what they've just looked at, they don't remember a single thing because it was all completely meaningless. Well, it's because take into account that uh, the average TikTok is, what, 25 uh, the people on average, 25 seconds. And if you're on for an hour, that means that you've watched, you know, 60, 80, 100 in, in an hour, right? So it's hard to remember, but it's the dopamine hit that that, that keeps on happening. Um, and um, again, I think that uh, maybe you and I would be like, yeah, that was a waste of time. You know, I was really tired after a long day of work. And so I kind of want to shut my brain down and have this entertainment. But uh, I think kids have fewer guardrails and so I think there's significant concern about autoplays that never stop. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, research and writings, including by the Wall Street Journal, where quickly that the videos, especially for children, you know, get into drug use, um, pornography, um, et cetera. And then when you couple the fact that um, some of these social platforms allow adults to reach out to children. Uh, now, changes have been made um, with, with some of these, but there's still issues in terms of the ability just inside the platform for adults and cyberbullying, et cetera. And then you mix that in with the addictive nature of what's happening. And basically, it's kind of a roach motel. You go in it's, and you don't come out. Um, then it makes for a very toxic environment that maybe you and I can sidestep, but it's much more difficult for kids. All right. So if we take a step back from TikTok and try to explore the wider Netscape, uh, the wider landscape, it seems yes. like we still have Google and Facebook and Snapchat and several other companies that are perhaps slightly more benign, but perhaps not that much more benign because they have the same incentives ultimately. So. How can we navigate this entire landscape and how can we as a society try to change it for the better? Can we change the incentive somehow? Well, I think it first comes down to the fact that at least the five largest ones are monopolies, right? And so they've created wall gardens. Once you are in the walled gardens, they continuously collect your data, serve your ads, and they want to keep you in the garden and they're using AI to keep you in the garden. The problem is it's hard to escape the garden. 
And one of the reasons why it's very hard to escape the garden is that these platforms lack core interoperability. So if I want to get off of Facebook, but unless all my friends leave en masse, I can't communicate with those that remain on Facebook. So I'm kind of stuck using Facebook. So it means there's actually less motivation for Facebook to innovate in areas like privacy and stop collecting as much data because we are so captive. Facebook had five breaches in 2019, like billions of records that were that were hacked. Of course, there was Cambridge Analytica. They apologized, but some of the same issues come up again. So it's kind of like, oh, we did this. We're so sorry. Another issue comes up. The other problem is, is that the big tech providers also provide marketplaces. This also includes Apple. I know Apple's very, you know much better when it comes to privacy, but they have a marketplace, right? And they provide the marketplace, but they also compete in the marketplace. So if you're a mobile app provider that charges for eBooks, you have to pay Google or Apple 30% if the consumer buys from the mobile app. But if Google or Apple offer that ebook, they don't have to play, pay the platform tax. So Google and Apple are able to offer a solution that is cheaper so they don't have to compete on price. In the case of Amazon, they'll sit there and look at all the products that are selling really well from third parties. And then two weeks later, all of a sudden, there's an Amazon basic version of it there. So you got with the fact that they own the marketplace, they can self-preference, they can copy, um, et cetera. And what means that means is, is that the core markets that big tech is in is that VCs don't want to fund any challengers. They become no-fly zones, um, et cetera. So the fundamental issue starts with the fact that they're monopolies, and if they're not being pushed by competitors to do more, and they're largely unregulated, we find ourselves in the situation where bad things happen with Meta, they apologize, and something comes up, and we'll continue to have the issues as it relates to digital surveillance and AI, uh, exasperated. As chair of the FTC, uh, Lena Khan said that these companies are too big to care, right? And so I think it, that you have to factor in the monopoly and you need to address and put a, more pressure on them as monopolies, like we did in the past with railroads, Standard Oil, AT&T. Hey, when AT&T was broken up, the, the the telecommunication revolution happened when Microsoft was told not to bundle the browser. Google came into being as well. So those are the type of things that need to first and foremost happen is on the monopoly antitrust issues, and then that then that should facilitate the ability to then go and provide more competition and better regulate them as it relates to surveillance and AI. So I love the examples you just cited. There's one more that's been bugging me probably even more than all of these combined, which is the idea that Google, which is primarily a search engine company and still makes most of its money from search, tends to develop a lot of free products like Chrome, the browser, like Android, the operating system, like even the ISPs underneath where it now provides its own fiber services, right? Just as a protection to keep people from competing with it in the search space. Worse yet, it pays Apple billions of dollars each year. It pays Mozilla. It pays Samsung. It pays essentially every other platform underneath to keep competitors out because that means they don't have to actually make the search users more happy. They can try to squeeze as much advertising dollars per user or per search as possible as a result. They 
also not only own search, but they own the advertising ecosystem that they provide the exchange, um, but they also provide the software for publishers and they provide the software for advertisers. And they are being sued because of that, because they, they are the pitcher, the batter, the umpire when it comes to digital advertising. And when they bought DoubleClick, they actually told the FTC that they would not combine the search engine, the consumer stuff with the advertising. But a few years after the acquisition, they've now merged that in. So they're so they they obviously have four billion users. Half the world's population uses a Google product. Google has, I think, nine products that have a, over a billion users. This is unheard of, right? Um, it, it took like General Motors a hundred years to sell five hundred million cars. A hundred years, while Google took them twenty years or so to get four billion users, etc. So they've got this wealth of data inside their walled gardens, but because they own the advertising ecosystem that is outside of their walled gardens for third-party publishers and advertisers, et cetera, and they intermix that data, it you know provides a very strong competitive advantage that basically you're not going to, if you come up with a business plan to come up with a search engine, no one's going to fund you. Right. If you and then and then they also own the advertising ecosystem as well. Now they're being looked at in this game, and so now what you see is a bunch of articles came out, including with the Wall Street Journal, that there was this analysis by this company called Adlinux, Adlytics, that they said that you know Google promised for YouTube advertising that it would be high quality ads that people would and all that stuff. For years, it turns out, according to this analysis that the third party websites playing the YouTube ads, you know, were just auto playing them and people were being charged as well. And that just kind of goes to the fact that, well, what's your alternative, right? And uh, uh, et cetera. So we do not have viable alternatives. Um, and look, these products are great. Don't get me wrong. They're incredible products, et cetera. But it'd be nice to have alternatives and we don't. And it'd be nice if alternatives that are better actually won. So I can use a slightly more benign example than the ones we've just discussed. Please. But almost everybody in my line of work uses Slack to communicate. And we all agree that Slack is the best product in class, obviously better than Microsoft Teams, right? For some reason, Microsoft Teams has five times more users than Slack does. For the basic reason that it's included in a bundle that you have to buy anyway, Microsoft Office. And therefore, it's free, even though it's not free, right? And so that fact alone, the bundling of a product with something else, essentially makes it five times as popular as the best product in the market. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't, can't disagree. I mean, that's actually been Microsoft's... Um, I mean, Microsoft had been the ultimate bundler, right? And they bundled... Like, Netscape had 90% market share, and then Microsoft said, yeah, we're going to bundle the browser as part of Windows, and we're not going to allow Dell or HP or Compact or whoever was around there to put alternative browsers. And Netscape went from 90% to 10%. That's obviously before mobile devices existed, et cetera. And what happened is, and that, that actually represents the last 
time that there's been a big antitrust win in tech. But they actually went in there and threatened, the DOJ threatened to break up Microsoft. But in the end, I think when George W. Bush became president, they they settled with Microsoft. Microsoft agreed not to only allow Internet Explorer, whatever it was called at the at the time, and that opened up the door for Google, right? And it actually helped spark the internet revolution. Otherwise, we've all been just having to live in the Internet Explorer world, you know, from Microsoft. Same thing happened with AT&T. AT&T, when they were broken up, you know, created a massive, you know, telecommunications revolution because of that. And so the funny thing is, is that people say, hey, don't cook the golden goose. You know, big tech is the engine behind the American economy. And yes, the five companies represent 20% of the S&P 500 from a market cap perspective. But, but man, like if we were able to allow other people to compete in a level playing field, you know, what other tech companies could actually um, happen? Um, you know, look at the Amazon marketplace. It's a complete pay-to-play deal right now uh, where, you know, for you to show up, you have to buy advertising. And increasingly, that's the same thing with Google with uh, the search results where that it's no, it's all about like either Google provides at the top their own vertical search results or you actually have to pay for the advertising as well. So uh, there's a guy, Corey Doctorow, calls it the enshittification, um, where these companies first attract people by offering the free offerings. Then they kind of screw over the consumers and favor the actual advertisers. But now they're kind of in a situation where they're kind of screwing over both to, to exploit profits, uh, etc., I think a lot of that has validity if you just simply compare a screenshot of Google search from 10 years ago to today. Same thing with a screenshot of Amazon marketplace and a search for an item, you know, a screenshot taken today as well. And then, of course, you know, if you look at the uh, Apple and Android, they, they, they have their own products that compete like Spotify. How can they compete? selling ebooks on iOS when Apple doesn't have to pay the 30% to sell an ebook. I think we understand the problems. Now I want to look at the possible solutions a little bit because maybe it's a somewhat cynical view, but I don't think a lawsuit against Google for its double-click acquisition is going to fix the problem. It seems like we need at least new legislation that actually explains why bundling is bad, why dumping, which is what you're doing when you're selling a product for $0, let's say a browser. Obviously, Chrome costs more than $0 to create. So selling it for $0 and capturing 75% of the market in browsers seems like dumping, right? Supposed to be illegal, but obviously it's happening. So do we need new legislation? Can states perhaps try to pass their own legislation and influence the marketplace that way? What's the solution? Well, clearly... um Yes, if the DOJ or FTC did an antitrust lawsuit, it would take multiple years, maybe across multiple administrations, right? No doubt about it. But the the government can pass, the federal government can pass laws uh, like it did with the railroads that the, the that with the separation between the goods and the actual rails, and that's what actually happened at the turn of the century, et cetera, right? So you can actually legislatively, just like 
we don't allow Goldman Sachs to buy NASDAQ, right? Because that wouldn't be fair because they they trade, but they, they shouldn't own the exchange. So you could have legislation to do that. So the first and foremost, you do, as I said before, you do need to address the competitiveness, but that doesn't mean you also should not move forward with, for example, a federal privacy law, right? Um, and to me, yes, you need a federal privacy law. Um, I was, I worked on Prop 24 in California to upgrade. Uh, I spent six months of my life as a full-time volunteer making that happen, um, and I was basically the chief marketing officer of that that campaign and it, it passed and and now 10 states in total with Oregon probably being the 11th uh, once the governor signs now has state laws but we do need a federal privacy law but to me there's two key things to that would really address and it's very simple the first thing that we need is we need mandatory support for opt out signals i.e. the global privacy control the, the issue there is is that if I, I was in Europe on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and it's like the cookie fatigue. Every website, cookie, cookie, and like if you want to configure, and eventually people just say, okay, yes, accept cookies. So that's that's crap, right? What you really need is the ability to, to have your browser or your mobile device send a signal that says, do not sell or share my data, don't collect sensitive information. And so I think only two of the state laws you know, require an opt-out signal. We do need that so we can get out of the whack-a-mole with cookies um, and basically be able to flip a switch on our our PC or Mac or our mobile device says, I'm opt-out, right? That addresses first-party data, people that we directly interact with. The other simple solution, and that would take consumers like 15 seconds to flip those switch, and, and that would seriously reduce the, the selling and sharing of personal data and the collection of sensitive personal information. The second resolution to this is that there's companies called data brokers that we don't have a direct relationship with. In effect, that represents third-party data, and they go out, they collect all this information about us, and they sell it, right? And so what I'm working on in California, I proposed this to my state senator. I co-authored the bill or co-drafted the bill, um, and it's Senate Bill 362. It passed the state Senate. It's called the California Delete Act. What that would do is it would provide a, a website where you register and you basically say, for all the data brokers that are registered with the state of California, delete my data. Take the consumer thirty seconds. They can hit the they can hit the delete button. So between the simple fix to to a lot of this surveillance issue is GPC and mandating the opt out signal, and having a data broker clearinghouse equivalent to the FTC do not call registry, where that addresses the data brokers and the third parties, while GPC the opt out signal deals with first. It would take a consumer a, a total minute to do both, and that would seriously reduce the flow of data, equivalent, actually at a three to four times scale of the reduction of data that has been seen when people start turning on Apple's app tracking transparency. 96% of people have turned that on, according to recent surveys, and that's, that got to the point that just the announcement of that, you know, Facebook said, it's going to cost us $10 billion in advertising. So those are the type of things that I talk about in the book that are simple things 
that we if we can get through that could have significant um you know uh impact on reducing the surveillance uh of us do you mind if i play devil's advocate and try to poke at these ideas and see how well they stand of course up? right so let me start from the last one the third party data brokers um i'm trying to figure out how tech is different from the non-tech applications of the same principles right right now my data is being tracked and sold by companies like Experian or Equifax or TransUnion or Duns & Bradstreet because I have a business, right? And I have no way to tell them, don't track me. I have no way to tell them, forget this information about me. I don't want this to be known by anyone, right? And even to the extent that I could tell them not to track me, I wouldn't want to do that because that would preclude me from seeking out certain services, like taking out the loan. So isn't the online data problem fairly similar in that even if you could tell companies not to know this about you, maybe you would miss out on access to certain services that require you to share that data, which means you would essentially accept it anyway, even if you don't want to. Well, I'm living and breathing this right now with California Senate Bill 362, which is the California Delete Act. Um, and we carefully define what is a data broker. A data broker is an entity that you don't have a direct relationship with that collects and sells your data, right? So first of all, if you have a direct relationship with one of those entities, then they're not a data broker. And if those entities also do not sell your data, they also are exempted from this, which means that it's going to be focused more on those uh, people search sites, uh, marketing, advertising, um, data brokers, as opposed to, to the type that you mentioned. Furthermore, we explicitly call out uh, entities that uh, fall under the the, uh, uh, the uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act as well. So there there are exemptions right there. There's further exemptions for fraud. Um, Etc. So you can craft a bill that exempts certain entities that are necessary to, you know, get loans approved, etc. Um, as and so what we do with this bill is that it does require entities to register um, that meet the strict definition. And and by the way, there's already an existing data broker registry, and there's 500 companies that have actually already registered. And we don't really change the definition of what a data broker is in this proposal. And then what we do is simply, and you can still then under California, because you do have the right to say, delete my data or do not sell or share my information. Those are California rights with that you get with the CCPA amended by the CPRA. What we're doing is we're kind of providing a user interface on top of these two bills that allows a consumer to go in and uh, they have to verify themselves, um, and then they you know put their email, their address down, et cetera, hit submit, and then it replicates the equivalent of them contacting the 500 registered data brokers to get their data deleted. Um, and so that's an incredible time savings to consumers. Furthermore, it also addresses the fact that if these data brokers collect any net new information about us, that you don't have to replicate the going back and telling these 500 entities to delete the data as well. And then lastly, it has a global do not track me anymore 
in terms of no longer selling or sharing my information as well. So yeah, no, it's there's there, it, it's not something that you just willy nilly throw together. You kind of need the infrastructure of an existing data broker registry law and having privacy rights like we have in California that you can build on top of that and basically provide a user interface that's modeled after the FDC do not call registry, which was challenged constitutionally, but found actually the way that it's written to to be constitutional. We modeled after that. So we even baked into the fact that, you know, that if there's a constitutional challenge that it will withstand that as well. So, hey, legislation ain't easy, um, but I think this is a big step for that. And the, the last thing that we I'll say is that we also modeled this on Senator Ossoff and Senator Kennedy, Ossoff, Democrat from Georgia, Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana. They proposed a federal version of the Delete Act, which they just actually reintroduced last week uh, in June of 23, uh, which would do something similar as well. And they've brought on additional bipartisan uh, sponsors to the bill as well. But we're plowing ahead here in California with this. So it is. Po- I think it could be possible, but we're very aware of some of the concerns that, that you would have right there. Uh, and we provide the, the appropriate exemptions and definitions of a data broker to address a lot of those concerns. So let me try to articulate that concern now in the opposite direction. Why should there be a distinction between a data broker online and Equifax, which sells my data without ever having a direct relationship with me? Why shouldn't we hold them accountable in the same way that we want to hold a data broker online accountable? Okay, so this is a separate registry for certain entities that we define in a certain way, okay? And what we're trying to do is provide an automated portal to get them to delete it, the data en masse without actually having to visit all of them. You still have the right in California for any business to be able to contact them directly and and ask them to delete your information as well. So that doesn't preclude you from doing that. Um, and so what we're trying to do is re- at least try to, you know, capture the most significant set of data brokers based on what we're trying to define without having to get things too complex. So it's, you know, there's a lot of sausage making that that's happening here as well. But if you, if you Google California data broker registry, you'll see the 500 entities that are there. You can download to a spreadsheet, right? The cool thing is, is that if this bill passes, and it's a big if because we're now in the assembly and it has to work its way through the assembly and the tech industry opposes it, much like they opposed the Ossoff Cassidy Delete Act that was proposed, much like there was howls from the telemarketing organization about the do not call registry. But if it gets passed at the very least in California, that we will automate the deletion from those 500 and you can do that in 30 seconds. And that would be a huge win, especially for people that, for example, are domestic violence survivors that don't want their information online about where their address is. It would be a great win for uh, immigrants that uh, to address the concerns that 
government agencies are going around the Fourth Amendment um, and using data brokers to get location information as opposed to having to get a subpoena uh, from a telecommunications provider. It will be a great relief to people seeking reproductive rights um, you know, going to Planned Parenthoods, et cetera, that they don't have to worry about someone actually, you know, tracking who's coming and going from uh, an abortion clinic here in California. So there's a lot of advantages that it has, uh, and we're not trying to make, you know, perfect the the enemy of pretty damn good. Right. Let me try to raise an objection that I'm sure uh, Senators Ossoff and Kennedy hear a lot on the national level. Yes. Which is, I am sure the industry will be saying that passing this act is going to destroy a lot of business and probably reduce GDP as a result, right? Because online advertising is a $450 billion a year market. If you make it less efficient because the advertisers don't know who to show their ads to, it probably shrinks to 300 or something like that. How do you address that? Well, it it fundamentally gets down to do the rights of advertisers trump the rights of individuals to have some control over how their personal data is being used and um and so i you know i maybe i, I probably should have a better analogy etc but uh you know no doubt there's billions of dollars being made or has been made with vape pens and cigarettes, et cetera. But, uh, and you could argue that, boy, that the whole vaping industry would be impacted if you banned the sale of uh, vaping to uh, paraphernalia to, to minors. But you got to ask what's best for, um, you know, society, right? And what's best for the individuals. And again, my thesis that I talk about in the book is, is that in years past, this wasn't that big of a deal, right? Uh, because it was really just about that annoying ad for the red shoes following you around the internet, right? But what's happened over the last four or five years that this data is increasingly being weaponized against people. So say, for example, the advertising system that you could say, oh, I'd only want to serve ads to women or married people, that same advertising system could be used and was used by landlords to say, I don't want unmarried women with children to see the ads for my rental units. That's a real world example of it being used in a discriminatory way. Another real world example is the data from Facebook Messenger was subpoenaed uh, in a case of a teenager getting an abortion in Nebraska, right? And then there was an issue of uh, a gay priest being outed based on data from data brokers that someone was able to track that person, that that gay priest visiting gay bars, and that person was outed, um, et cetera. There was instances in which people bought data uh, associated with who was using period tracking apps and who was visiting Planned Parenthoods, because if you get the data, you can see where the people bed down at night, 
right? So even though the data, quote unquote, is anonymous of the location information, you can actually see by tracking someone that, you know, every night they go to this, you know, home and address in Austin, Texas, you know, within minutes, you can clearly figure out it's, uh, it's, uh, Joey Bag of Donuts that lives there that was visiting this site. So the point is, is that if we prioritize advertisements versus over the protection of domestic violence survivors, uh, over the constitutional rights of individuals that people are circ- circumventing the, the Fourth Amendment, that's not good. And that's what I call weaponization. And so I think there does need to be a realization that that this shit is happening, right? And we need to address it. I think one of the interesting examples of what you've just described was kind of evident from the Alex Murdoch trial in uh, the South that kind of became a national sensation in the past month, where essentially the entire case was built from Apple Watch, Fitbit, and cell phone data. There would have been no case that linked him to the murder that he was eventually convicted for, were it not for essentially every minute of his day being completely tracked. So I'm sure people kind of fall on different sides of that. Maybe they say that in his case, it was good that we had all this tracking. But when I watched that trial, it seemed a little bit creepy that we know so much about every single moment of his life. Yeah, but I I have no problem with people, a government agency subpoenaing the cell phone provider and say, we this person's a suspect, right? That's the way it should be done, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you actually go to a judge and say, we have probable cause and we're going to get this information as opposed to them going to a data broker and take into account that some studies have shown that 50% of data from data brokers is wrong or incorrect, right? And so you wouldn't want a situation in which, what if the guy reset the phone and he had a different mobile advertising ID and they were tracking the wrong person, et cetera. I mean, so you can play it both ways, but at the end of the day, that I fundamentally believe that we should have rights as it relates to our privacy. Um, and, And if you believe in that, then it flows from there that I should say, I don't want these people selling my data. I don't want people, I want to delete my data. I want to have the right to correction. These are all the fundamental things. Um, And maybe I'm biased because I live in California. And in the early 70s, California passed on a ballot initiative adding the right to privacy to our constitution. In the U.S. Constitution, there's no mention of the word privacy, but the right to privacy is in the California Constitution, and that helps facilitate a lot of the privacy work that's being done in California. First, the California Consumer Privacy Act to provide an omnibus bill, Prop 24, the California Privacy Rights Act, the layer on top of that to provide a version two to get us closer to GDPR. Last year, we passed the California Age-Appropriate Design Code, um, to help address kids' online safety. And then what I'm act- working on right now is to better regulate and provide more con- consumer control vis-a-vis third parties known as data brokers that, that collect and sell our data with whom we don't have a direct relationship with as well. So I, I think that this is the way to go, which is to give people to- the right to control um, their personal information. All right, so... Only two more questions, and now I want to get back to the constructive stuff. 
I'm done playing devil's advocate. So you've mentioned a lot of work that you're doing in California. Now, as somebody who perhaps doesn't understand the kind of federal system as well, because I am an immigrant to this country, I'm trying to figure out how much should be done by states as opposed to the federal government. Can the states really lead this charge and get this done just by virtue of California being a large enough economy to force everybody to comply? Or does this have to be federal? Look, um, you know, in Europe, they called it the Brussels effect. And Europe has really taken the lead in privacy. And coming out of World War II, they actually put it into the Declaration of the UN's Declaration of Human Rights, and it was in, into the, the founding of the European Union that this is important. And, and a lot of it had to do with what happened coming out of World War II. In the case of California, it's known as the California effect. And California historically has been the trend center when it comes to consumer protection. And the, the best example of that is auto emissions. And California really sets the standard for the U.S., right? Um, and so that doesn't mean there shouldn't be a, a federal standard for auto emissions or privacy, et cetera. But I do like the fact that states, to quote uh, former uh, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, that they're the laboratories of democracy, right? And so what I fundamentally believe is, is that we should have a federal privacy law that should act as the floor for what you get. Now, most states probably, if they have a law or they don't, that that raises the level to that floor and that benefits everyone, but it should also provide the ability, especially in technology where there's a lot of fast moving things that it's hard for the federal government to keep up with things that allows an individual state to innovate, especially like in the areas of AI. Uh, which we, we're now having issues that we didn't have a year ago uh, and concerns, et cetera. So from my perspective, we do need a federal privacy law. It should not preempt state law. So that means it should be a floor versus a ceiling, right? It should have some teeth in terms of enforcement, much like, and it should have an enforcement agency. I'm perfectly fine with it being part of the FTC. Uh, and in California, we have an enforcement agency as part of Prop 24, the California Privacy Rights Act. It's called the California Privacy Protection Agency. It's the first and only in the U.S. In fact, when that gets fully ramped up, it's going to have more staff working on privacy than the FTC has for the entire nation as well. So I think we need to have a system that fulfills former Justice Brandeis's vision of the states acting as a laboratory for democracy, but we should have floor standards out there so that everyone in the United States, as opposed to California, will benefit. Now, the reality is there hasn't been that much action at a federal law, and so the states are taking the lead. And, and last year, there was five states with privacy law. Uh, Texas signed HB4 a week or two ago. We're now at 10. The bill in Oregon is on the governor's desk. They will likely be 11th. And then we got Delaware. So we're pretty soon that, you know, we're probably going to have, you know, a fourth of the population, um, you know, will be under a, a privacy law. And hopefully that will add further motivation for Washington to come out with a comprehensive federal that sets the floor. So this was a part of the reason I'm asking, because it seems like while California thinks, tends to be innovative in these particular topics, 
when it comes to big tech, it is somewhat conflicted in that it benefits a lot from big tech companies being successful. So perhaps it would actually be easier to pass some of these laws in states like Texas or Florida that are also large enough, but that are somewhat hostile to big tech for either political reasons or for just reasons of not benefiting enough from their success. Well, let me jump in here. So actually, California, I agree with you that the tech industry, again, the, the big tech players have 20% from a market cap perspective. Five companies have 20% of the Standard & Poor's 500 overall value. I mean, we're talking about the biggest companies the world's ever seen, right? And you know, you know, everyone talks about GM, they talk about Standard Oil, et cetera, but they don't have the reach, they don't have the valuation, et cetera. So these are the biggest companies the world's ever seen. Obviously, they have very big lobbying um, capabilities. That being said, California also has a system of direct dem democracy, uh, which is the proposition system. And what happened was in 2020, that a gentleman by the name of Alistair McTaggart, who, who actually was a real estate guy, and but he was really concerned about privacy, what he read. He actually, in 2018, put together a proposition called the California Consumer Privacy Act, and he was going to put it on the ballot. The tech community you know, was going to fight it. Then Cambridge Analytica occurred. They kind of backed down. And then the legislature said, you know, we look really stupid for not doing this, having this on the ballot. We're going to look like complete idiots. So they took over the CCPA and they passed it unanimously. And Governor Brown at the time signed it, right? But then the very next year, what happened was, was that the tech industry started watering it down. They got in there. We're going to kill it. We're going to do this. We're going to do this, et cetera. So what Alistair did was said, screw it. I'm going to do a ballot initiative, which was Prop 24 in the 2020 campaign. I, I met Alistair. I joined as a full-time volunteer, worked for six months. And what CPRA did was it made the law a floor versus ceiling, meaning that the privacy law could not be watered down. So first and foremost, it said, you guys can't water it down, right? Which was very innovative, right? And that was the first thing that it did. It also added the privacy agency and it added some additional things to make California privacy law further on par with GDPR. Uh, so I actually differ with you in that in states such as California that have a direct democracy, i.e. a proposition, you can potentially get around the influence of large industry right there. And California is now the fourth largest economy in the world, and it has significant influence and impact uh, you know, what's happening more so than a Florida or a Texas would have. All right. So last question, I like to help to end on a hopeful note. So if everything that you envision comes to pass, what will the internet look like or what will the tech landscape look like in five years? Well, the, the first thing is, is that I, I want more competition. Competition is good. Um, when you have such a consolidation of, of power, it's unhealthy for our democracy. And if you look at the unleashing of innovation that occurred when AT&T was broke up, with the telecommunications revolution, with what happened when Microsoft was no longer uh, allowed to, to force and require and bundle Internet Explorer, you had Google and other tech companies grow up. I think if there's an opportunity to loosen the reins, 
you know, for the monopolist that it's going to, instead of having dead zones and no-fly zones for entrepreneurs, that you will have people that will have innovative ideas that can better compete. And so we'll have a flourishing of competition out there, right? And, you know, and one area that you can you can do is say, stop self-preferencing. You can say, you know, stop leveraging market data to enrich yourself. Um, you can't compete in the market and provide the market, uh, et cetera. Those are some of the things that you can do. So you have a much healthier, more competitive environment that will spur additional innovation and make us a healthier economy. The second thing is when I talked about the global privacy control and the delete act, et cetera, that for the first time will make privacy simple for consumers and will empower them as opposed to make it difficult and painful and and they throw up their hands and say there's nothing that I can do. And then finally the third thing is is that we'll start looking to provide more transparency around AI and then furthermore hopefully give us some basic rights as it relates to AI. Okay? For example, the right to object to automated decision-making, right? Because now, if you get rejected for a loan or whatever, and it's done all by the computer, so to speak, you don't have any, there's no way. But if you can say, wait a minute, I I object to this, and so there needs to be some human intervention associated with this to tell me why my loan was rejected, I think that makes for a fair, more equitable world. Um, out there as we continuously rely on AI for automated decision-making as well. So I think what you'll have is less discrimination. And as I mentioned before, more control of your personal data and more innovation. Sounds excellent. If people want to learn more about these topics or explore your work in greater depth, where should they go? So I have a website, tomkemp.ai. And I have information about the book. I have information about the California Delete Act. I have a, a very exhaustive blog um, that I go into detail about, you know, privacy, digital surveillance, AI, um, etc. So that that's the main hub. If you want to order the book, it's containingbigtech.com, and uh, the book comes out in August. But you can pre-order right now, and. As we're talking right now, we're just a few weeks away from that. So I would encourage people to go ahead and just order a copy. And and in mid to late August, uh, it will show up in your mailbox. All right, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great episode. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussions on news, media, and the information ecosystem as a whole.